Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 uh, um, is a story of the healing in Jesus' ministry of a man that was born blind. And um, some of the real meat of the story is not really our, our point in using this example, but you just can't refer to John chapter 9 without getting into some of the details about uh, what the Scripture says. So we'll take a few minutes and do it just uh, out of a necessity, really. John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And as Jesus was passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, I'm reading from the King James, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, period. I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, the punctuation in this um, story, this translation, the King James translation, clearly identifies what the translators thought was taking place. You will recall that the uh, original Greek text that uh, the English translation was taken from has no uppercase or lowercase letters. It has no punctuation. It has very little spacing. You know the Bible wasn't written in chapter and verse. John didn't write a letter to the church in chapter and verse. And so the, uh, uh, the translators are left um, on their own to a, great to a great degree to identify what's really taking place. And as we've said numerous times, the translation, no matter which one it is or how good it is, is dependent on two things. One is the translator's knowledge of the, the language, in this case the Greek language for the New Testament. And the other thing that uh, a translation is dependent on is the translator's understanding of God. Because if they understand God correctly, then the translation will reveal or show God's character in an accurate way. But if a translator is of the opinion, for example, we'll use this one in this case, if the translators were of the opinion that God makes people sick, sometimes. If they're of the opinion, the translators are of the opinion that sometimes God heals and sometimes he makes people sick, then there are going to be cases and times where the verse designation and the punctuation is used incorrectly. This is an ideal example of what we're talking about. Jesus was asked by his disciples, got to give them credit in this case. We get on to them for a lot because of their unbelief. But they were right on on this one. They said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They understood that sickness was caused by sin. They're just trying to find out whose sin it was. Was it the, the uh, man's sin? Well, that'd be hard to explain because how does, how does a baby sin before birth that would cause him to be blind? A better and more um, common thought, I guess, would be that something went wrong with the parents. There was sin in the parents' life, and the blindness was on the child as a result of their sin. But Jesus answers the question. And the question is, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Jesus does not say sin is not the problem. He says it's not the sin of the parents that's the problem, and it wasn't the sin of the baby who grew up without the ability to see. I would 
If I was a translator with the understanding I have of, of God and how God operates, I'd put the period right at the end of the parents. Neither is this man's sin nor his parents, period. Because then Jesus begins to, think, begins to speak about something that goes beyond their question. Now that he's answered their question, it wasn't this man's sin, it wasn't his parents' sin, that leaves really only one other option, and that is, must be Adam's sin. And folks, that is the, uh, that's the correct in, uh, answer for how sin brought sickness into the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. In other words, the consequences of sin. Sickness is a consequence of sin. But Jesus identifies that it's not the parents and it's not the man, so it's got to be Adam's. Adam's sin is what opened the door to sickness and disease. But then Jesus starts talking about what he's going to do. Notice the last part of verse 3. He said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, comma. I'd put a comma there. I must work the works of him that sent me. I would not make the, the verse designation at the end of verse 3 the way that it shows in the King James. I'd make, the, I'd make verse 4 start with, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me. Now, some people have heard this uh, uh, explanation or this claim, and they'll say, well, that can't be right. The translators knew what they were doing. Well, think about what that means then. If Jesus said that he came to do the works of his father, and he says very clearly in verse 4, or the end of verse 3, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. What work did he do? See, it's very easy to see what God does and what God intended in this case, in this situation, because Jesus talked about doing the works of his father. So he said, I'm going to do the works of my father. Well, what did he do? He healed the man. Didn't he? Well, then healing must be the works of God who sent him. Healing must be the works of God in this case. Yeah, but some people would say, but God made him sick. God made him blind, caused him to be born blind. Well, let's consider what that means. God never changes. So if God ever wanted this man to be blind, if it was the will of God for this man to be born blind, then Jesus is operating contrary to the will of God by bringing him out of that blindness. That makes Jesus a sinner. Well, no, 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 that's not how it works, Pastor Mike. God made him blind so Jesus would have somebody to heal. Well, then which is right? Is healing good or is blindness good? Well, some would say God wants some people to be sick because he's got something he wants to teach them. Well, then that means for some people, sickness is good. And for other people, healing is good. Now, how can you learn to trust God if you're wondering which is which? You can't. In fact, the Bible says God never changes, which means it's impossible for him to be the one making people sick and healing at the same time. Because God just doesn't come up with a, a whim or a stray thought and operate contrary to his character and his nature. So it's got to be one way or the other. Either healing is good or sickness is good. And if sickness is good, then sickness has to always be good. But if healing is good, then that means sickness is evil and healing is always good. Well, let's see if we can find the answer. In Acts 10.38, it says, How God anointed 
Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power who went about doing good. What good did he do? Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Now, folks, if that verse is to be taken literally, if it's a faithful representation of the character and the nature of God, which I believe it is, then that verse of Scripture, if we didn't have anything else, that verse of Scripture would tell us that healing is good and God wants healing for all of his people. Always. So Jesus says, neither is this man's sin nor his parents, period. That's the end of the question, the answer to the question. But then he goes further and says, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. Well, we know the healing is the work that God sent him to do. Jesus goes on to say, I must do these works or while I'm in the world, while it's day. The night's coming when no man can work. He's talking about going to the cross, the period of time between the old covenant and new, new covenant, the fulfilling of the old and the entrance of the new, when no mighty work, no healing work, no supernatural work was taking place on the part of man. Notice verse 6. When he had thus spoken, when he had explained that, he, that healing was the work of God, which means it has to be his will. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. He came seeing. I want you to notice something, folks. There are a good number of the healing events that took place in Jesus' ministry that we have record of in the four Gospels. It seems like there's more because many of the uh, gospel writers talk about the same ones. But there are 19 individual cases of healing identified in the four gospels. 19 individual cases. Now, there had to be more people that were healed than that. There had to be more stories that the Holy Ghost could have saved for us and could have given to us. Because John said if the world, uh, he said if all the things that Jesus said and did were written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, that means that a lot more things happened than what we have record of happening. And with the, the percentage or the frequency of healings that took place in Jesus' ministry, we would have to conclude that there were a lot of other healing events that took place that we just don't have record of. That would have to be right, wouldn't it? If what John said was true, it would, ha it would have to be right. So there were a lot of other cases in Jesus' ministry, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. But there were a lot of other cases that we don't have record of but of the ones that we do have record of, there are a, a good number, almost half, where healing came as a result of some action that took place, took part, or took place on, from the part of the person being healed. In this case, it was go wash off in the pool of Siloam. You remember the 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17? Jesus came to a village and there were 10 lepers afar off and they cried, have mercy on us, thou son of David. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priests, and they were cleansed as they went. You remember the story how that one came back, only one of the nine came back to thank Jesus and glorify him for the healing that took place, but all ten were cleansed as a result of their obedience to what God told them to do, what Jesus told them to do. There are other cases. In John chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda, the Bible tells us that Jesus told him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. He was looking to be the first one in the water after the, the angels come and stirred the water up, you remember? But somebody always beat him there, and so Jesus just told him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
There was another case in the synagogue on the Sabbath day where Jesus went and there was a man that had a withered hand. And the Pharisees stood by, the rulers of the synagogue stood by to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. And Jesus asked a couple of questions to shame the Pharisees, to show that healing was good on the Sabbath day, no matter what they thought about the traditions that should be held and kept and whatever. And he told the man with the withered hand, stretch forth your hand. And when he did, it was made whole. You remember the story of the four guys that brought their crippled friend into the house or to the house where Jesus was ministering. The Bible says the house was full. So they went up on top of the roof and took off part of the ceiling tiles, the roof tiles and let him down. Jesus says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, thy sins be forgiven you. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. How does a crippled guy get up? How does a man with withered hand, which means he doesn't have any hand to, to stretch forth, how does he stretch forth his hand? There was a, a case. Uh, uh, do you guys know who Rick and Denise Renner are? Rick and Denise Renner. They pastor a church. They've been in, uh, in uh, Russia for a long time. They started off in one of the Latvian countries, uh, or Scandinavian countries. I think it was Latvia. But uh, they moved into um, Moscow several years back. They've got a beautiful church, growing place, just doing a wonderful work there. He's, uh, he's probably as well-known or maybe better well-known, more well-known because of the books that he's got out. He's authored a lot of books. Well, their friends of ours and, uh, and Denise uh, told Beth a story about somebody in their church. Now, I got it secondhand, so I'm not sure I'm going to have all the details right, but you'll get the gist of it. There was a, a lady in their church that was a, a world-class athlete, triathlete, I believe. And something happened. I don't know what the, the cause of the injury was, but there was some kind of injury to her back. And as a result, she had to stop participating in the triathlons and the other athletic events. She may have even been in training for the Olympics at one time or another. But anyway, this, uh, this injury stopped her from doing anything and everything that she used to do and was accustomed to doing. And, uh, and she suffered with this thing for some period of time. And she prayed about it and had people lay hands on her and pray about it and so forth. But finally, she just asked the Lord to show her what to do. And the Lord spoke to her and said, train for your healing. Well, she understood what that meant. She understood that God wanted her to go through her training and, and pick her training back up. As if she had never stopped. Well, it was real painful for her. Every day was an excruciating type thing. Because she's going through, I'm sure she wasn't training as hard as she had before the injury. I doubt if that would have been possible. But she's doing everything she can. She's training for, for her healing. She knows what God is leading her to do. Well, you know the end of the story. She entered into, into some contest, race. I don't know if it's a triathlon in this case or just whatever it was. But she entered into some kind of contest. And during the race, she received the full manifestation of her healing. She started the race with a back injury. She finished the race completely restored to health. Well, now, why would God tell somebody to do that? There are other cases in Jesus' ministry where Jesus didn't make it easy for him at all. I know of, uh, I'm thinking of one case where Jesus passed by and there were two blind men on the road and they asked what the commotion was and somebody told them it was Jesus that was passing by and so they started screaming. They started hollering out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus didn't stop. 
he and his disciples continued on. And these two blind guys followed after them, crying out the same thing. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Finally, when Jesus got to the place where he was going, the house that he was going, these two blind men eventually caught up to him wherever he was headed and came in and Jesus asked him then and only then, what will you have me to do? They said, Lord, that we might receive our sight. And he ministered healing, laid hands on them, their eyes were opened, and they came again seeing. Why wouldn't Jesus stop? See, if you look at it from just a purely emotional standpoint, you could pretty well convince yourself that Jesus was pretty hard-hearted in certain cases. That was the same case in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus was dealing with the Syrophoenician woman. Remember, he wouldn't answer her to begin with. Finally, he said that he wasn't sent. But to anyone but outside the law, she was a house of Israel. And then he called her a dog. As a Gentile, he called her a dog. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Why did Jesus do that? Jesus seems to have some weird ways of operating in certain cases. But folks, there's something that, that I think is important for us to maintain an understanding of. And that is, faith is a fight. It's a contest between you and the devil. And God wants you to win every time. But that doesn't mean he's going to trip up your enemy to let you win without exerting an effort. And in each one of these cases, and they didn't just start with Jesus. You remember in the Old Testament, Naaman, the Syrian, he's captain of the Syrian army. He contracts leprosy. And one of the little slave girls that works in his house was a little Jewish girl that was taken into captivity. And so she tells him about the prophet that's over in Israel. When Amon gets so excited at the prospect, the possibility of being freed from this leprosy, that he goes, shows up, talks to the king of Israel. The king of Israel think it, thinks it's a plot. He thinks it's, it's part of the Syrian army's tactics to make some excuse for, for Naaman not being healed and then waging war against Israel. But Elisha, word gets to Elisha that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, torn his clothes in a show of his understanding of what he thought the Syrian army was doing and what Syria was, was uh, attempting to pull off. And so he said, send him to me. He told the king of Israel, send Naaman to me. When Naaman comes down with a great entourage, he's a man of great importance. You know, those people don't travel by themselves. They've got everything to take, everybody to take bags and make sure their journey is comfortable and all this kind of stuff. Had a big crowd. And Elisha didn't even come outside. He didn't even come to meet him, this man of great importance. He told him, go dip seven times in the River Jordan and he'll come again clean. Remember, Naaman got upset about that. He said, why in the world should I have to dip in the filthy waters of the Jordan River? What does that have to do with healing? You wouldn't think it would have anything to do with it, would you? He even said, if dipping in the water is going to do it, why didn't I just stay and dip in the waters of Parfar? Which was the Syrian river. Wouldn't even have to leave home for that. 
But the people around him talked him into it. They said, you know, if he'd asked you to do something hard, you'd been willing to do that. Now think about that. It's a natural tendency to think that if we do something hard, then we've proven ourselves to God. But the way you prove yourself to God is just by obeying whatever he tells you to do. Anyway, they talked him into, the servants and the people that were with him talked Naaman into dipping in the Jordan River. And just like Elisha said, he came away and his leprosy was clean. By the time he had dipped that seventh time, his leprosy was gone. Now Naaman doesn't care what he's told him to do. Naaman is so excited about what he's received, he goes back to where Elisha is and he tells him how grateful he is and let me give you some money and all this other kind of stuff. And you remember how that story went. So that was something that was before Jesus. So it must not just be inherent or exclusive to Jesus. It must be a pattern that sometimes occurs by the direction of God. I remember Brother Hagin's story. You've probably heard this enough to remember it as well. Brother Hagin came to the place where he finally had revelation. He'd been in the sickbed for 16 months. He finally came to the place where he understood, finally came to Mark eleven twenty four and understood it, that you've got to believe or you're supposed to believe that you receive your healing before you have your healing. He realized that he was waiting to see it in his body before he started believing it. And that made all the difference in the world. So he said, he made the adjustment, and he said, Father, according to your word, I believe I received my healing now in the name of Jesus. And so he just began to worship God for a few minutes. And after a minute or two, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him and said, Now you believe you receive your healing. Brother Hagin said, Yeah, sure do. He said, Get up then. Well, people ought to be up this time of day. It's about 1030 in the morning. How's a crippled guy? How's a bedfast guy? going to get up there are times well I guess I better finish the story don't leave you hanging on that one he worked himself without any, any um, control of his legs whatsoever very little control of his arms he worked himself to the edge of the bed threw his legs out over the edge he said they were like cordwood no feeling whatsoever He's trying to get out to the side of the bed so he can hold on to the bedpost nearest to his pillow, and he starts sliding down. And while he's sliding down to the floor, he says, I believe I received my healing in Jesus' name. Then Brother Hagin said the power of God hit him. He said something hit him in the top of his head, and it began to ooze down over his face and his neck and his shoulders and so forth. He said it felt like somebody was pouring a pitcher of warm honey on me. And everywhere that that power of God touched it restored feeling to his body he said it felt like it was 10,000 needles being stuck in me at every point he said it hurt so good I couldn't hardly stand it when you haven't felt anything even a little bit of pain felt good I guess anyway by the time that that power by the time that warm honey feeling anointing got to the floor he's standing straight with complete use and control of his arms and his legs and his paralysis was gone. Why is it important that God have us do certain things? Now let me remind you of this. You remember the story? In yes, Lord, I'm here. <laughs> you remember the story in John chapter 2 about Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana? 
Do you remember how that went? Do we need to turn there and read it or can we just talk about it? Are you familiar enough with it to know? Jesus goes to the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It must have been a relative of theirs because of the place that Mary seems to have in providing food and drink and all that kind of stuff or helping make sure it gets to the people. So it's got to be some kind of uh, um, relative of Jesus. And so Mary sees that the, water, that the wine is running out. So she goes to Jesus and says, we're running out of wine. And Jesus almost acts offended. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. It seems to be, at least this is the way I read it. You tell me if it's the same for you. It seems to me that Jesus knows she's asking for a miracle. It seems that Jesus knows she's asking him to do something because he's saying it's not time. He doesn't say, I can't. He doesn't say, I can't do anything about this. He says, it's not mine hour. Mine hour has not yet come. Well, she doesn't take offense at that. She turns to the servants and says one simple thing, and that is, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, that's a strange thing for a mother to say. Because if Jesus has just said, I'm not going to do anything about this, I'm not going to do whatever it is you want. She's looking for wine, additional wine to be provided. We don't know how she's expecting that it will be provided. But she doesn't go to the person that has the money to buy the wine. She goes to Jesus and says, here's the problem. See, my mind just expands to all kinds of things that Jesus' home life could have been like. My thinking just goes in all directions about what Mary may have experienced as being his mother all these years while he's living at home. Before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, before he's been commissioned into his ministry by the hand of God. But even, even so, there are blessings associated with the covenant of Abraham, covenant God had with Abraham, that would provide a basis for him to experience and, and his mother to experience certain miracles because of the relationship they had with God. See, the anointing of the Holy Ghost wasn't something that happened to make Jesus a part of God's covenant people. It was something that took place to equip him to minister to other people. But you can't find any miracle or any work of God or any gift of the Spirit that is to be done or can be done for other people that you can't get the same results for by believing God on your own without any special manifestation or move of the Spirit of God. Here's what I'm saying. Healing belongs to you as a believer, as a child of God, because it's part of what Jesus paid for on the cross. But there's a whole lot of difference between you and I taking hold of our healing based on the Word of God, based on our knowledge of God's Word, and operating in a miracle ministry to minister healing to other people. The first, all you need is a relationship with God and the knowledge of his word to get healing for yourself. The second, you're going to need the power of God to minister that healing to other people. Do you understand what I mean? Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? Otherwise, why would she go to Jesus? That just doesn't seem to make sense. Why would she go to Jesus to tell him about the problems they have with the wine running out if she wasn't looking for him to do something. He, he understands that she wants him to do something. He says it's not time yet. 
Why would she go to him expecting him to do something? If she has not witnessed certain things that can't be explained or that are at least uncommon occurrences. And in addition to that, for her to answer to the, to the uh, or tell the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Why would she say that if she wasn't used to words that he says and directions that he gives from bringing big time supernatural results? Otherwise, there's no reason whatsoever for her to make a statement like that. Do you agree? I can't figure out anything else that makes sense in that story. Well, you remember what happened. Jesus told the servants to fill the water pots with water and then bear them to the governor of the feast. The servants knew what happened. The servants were the ones responsible for filling the water pots with water. And so they know by the time it gets to the governor, it's turned into wine. They knew the miracle that took place. But again, it comes down to obeying and following after what Jesus told them to do. The miracle occurred because they obeyed what Jesus said to do. Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Let's start reading in verse, uh, well, let's just pull verse 13 out. John chapter 16, verse 13, he said, How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you. The word guide is also the word teach. He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Notice verse 13. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you, he will teach you, he will lead you, he will direct you into all truth. What kind of truth? Is he saying that the Holy Ghost will just guide us into the truth of the word? Well, thank God he does. But notice he said all truth. So if the Holy Ghost is going to guide us into all truth, that means he's going to have to, or at least he's commissioned by God to lead us into everything that the word says is ours. In other words, the Holy Ghost is compelled to guide you into healing. He's compelled to guide you into receiving what belongs to you. Jesus said that's what he would do. You don't have to talk him into doing it. But you do have to be aware and look for his direction. I think a lot of times, and Brother Hagin talked about this a lot too. He said when he was on that sick bed, bed fast for those 16 months, 17 months total, but bed fast for those, that, all those months, he said that he didn't have anybody to tell him anything about the word. He said he received some of the greatest revelation about faith during that period of time just hearing the Holy Ghost on the inside of it. Now, when he started off, he didn't even know it was the Holy Ghost that was speaking to him. There were times where he, had to, he was trying to identify who's talking to me. And the Holy Ghost would lead him back to the Word. There was one place, particularly right, at the, um, uh, right after he received his healing, 
there was one place where the devil had spoken to Brother Hagin the morning that he went in to have breakfast and revealed to his family that he had been healed a couple of days before. The devil told him that he was going to die that day. And over a period of time, there was a voice on the inside. He, he didn't know what it was. It was a supernatural occurrence. The voice that he heard was, he thought was audible, seemed audible to him. And so he thought that that was God telling him that his time has come. Healing is right. He had been healed, but his time to die had come. And the Holy Spirit spoke on the inside of him along the way after several hours of him waiting to die, sitting in the chair waiting to die. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, with long life I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. And he asked the question. He said he was by himself, so he asked out loud, who said that? And the answer was Psalm 91. Now what he means is, who's talking to me? But the Holy Ghost led him back to the Word. So certainly the Holy Ghost will always lead you to the Word. The Spirit and the Word agree. In every case and in every situation, the Holy Ghost is not going to ever tell us something that's contrary to the Word of God. He's not going to tell us anything that's contrary to God's will. But if we'll trust Him, if we'll look for Him to lead us, He'll guide us into the truth of everything that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. And that includes healing. Part of His job is to guide you into truth. Part of his job is to guide you into healing. Part of his job is to guide you into financial abundance. That's part of his job. That's what Jesus said that the Father would send the Holy Ghost to the earth to do. He shall guide you into all truth. He shall guide you into all truth. He shall guide you into all truth. What does that mean? Well, one thing, one of the most obvious things it means, we know in Mark chapter 11, Jesus explains the operation of faith Verse 23, he talks about how faith works by saying, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Then he explains in verse 24 what faith looks like in prayer. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. But Jesus continues to talk. We usually stop talking about or stop teaching with verse 24 because we're talking about the principles of faith and believing you receive before you have and things like that but verse 25 is part of what he said too he said and when you stand praying forgive if you have aught against if you have aught against any that your father in heaven can also forgive you your trespasses so he's telling them while he's talking about the principles of faith he talks to him about how faith works in prayer he identifies that unbelief is going to be the number one hindrance to people's faith working well, if the Holy Ghost has gotten you into all truth and unforgiveness is the sticking point, wouldn't he be faithful to show you? One of the things that people say, I don't hear it so much nowadays as I used to, but people used to say things like, Lord, cleanse me of secret sin. What does that mean? I guess people are talking about sins that they committed that they don't know. But the Holy Ghost will bring to your, con to, to your spirit conviction if you've done something to step outside of love. So you'd already know. There's no such thing as secret sin. Yeah, but that's what David said. Well, that may have been David's issue in the, under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, any step outside of love, we've got an instant 
guide on the inside of us. The Holy Ghost is there to show us that we've done the wrong thing. We instantly feel guilty about what we did from our hearts, from our spirits. So there's no such thing as secret sin. So what does that mean? That means if you're looking for the Holy Ghost to guide you into the truth of healing, and he's not showing you a problem, there isn't one. There isn't one. Some months ago, I got to the point where I thought, okay, I need to just bear down on this. I need to take some time off. I need to get by myself, get away from the family, get away from the job, get away from any responsibilities. I need to just get in a place where I can fast for several days and seek the Lord over this thing. I'm talking about my physical condition. And so I made plans to do that. I had cleared everything off for several days. I had about four or five days stretched out where I could take care of everything I needed to do and still have this time alone with God. I'm making preparation for it, making plans for it. So, at the end of a service, which would begin my four or five day stretch, I simply said to the Lord, sitting in my car, driving home, I said to the Lord, now Lord, you know what my plan is. I'm going to take these next five days and I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you and look to you to show me that if there's anything I need to do that I'm not doing or anything I need to stop doing that I am doing so you can reveal that to me. And instantly, I heard this booming voice. I know it wasn't audible, but it sounded like it to me. But it, at the very least, it was a booming voice on the inside of me in my spirit. And he quoted Mark eleven twenty two, 22. Have faith in God. Well, that rattled me and shook me to the point where I realized, okay, I get the point. The point is just stand in faith. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. If I had gone any further to seek after some secret sin or seek after something that was wrong after having heard God say what he said I would open the door to losing everything that I'd gained but thank God he's faithful he saw that I was about to make a mistake trying to look for something that wasn't there and all it, to all it took was one small scripture have faith in God. That answered my question. Now, don't get me wrong. The devil's come since then. He's pretty regular about trying to talk me into believing that I've done something here or that there's some unforgiveness or something else. But you know, if unforgiveness was the problem, Jesus could have very easily said, instead of Mark eleven twenty four, he could have just said, and when you stand praying, forgive. That would have revealed to me what needed to be done, wouldn't it? But like Brother Hagin used to say, you've got to go as much by what God doesn't tell you as what he does. See, the Holy Ghost is commissioned by God to guide us into the truth. That means if we're keeping an open heart, a teachable spirit about us, so that we're willing to do whatever we need to do, willing to make whatever adjustments need to be made, then it's up to him to show you. Thank God he's faithful. Thank God he's faithful. So, I wound up with a five-day vacation. Or the equivalent thereof. Because the Lord showed me just plain as can be. There's nothing to seek him about. There's nothing to try to run down. There's nothing to try to adjust. There's nothing to try to fix. Have faith in God. <laughs> 
Now, that doesn't mean you have to know everything. See, I don't know what all is behind the time that's been, that it's taken for this thing with me. I don't know. I was listening not too long ago to tape that Brother Hagen, uh, or service that was taped that I had. And um, I, I've got so many that, that I could go through several years without running across anyone at any time, you know. And, uh, and, and I just happened to hear this one where Brother Hagen talked about believing God. And he says, I'm not one of these people that think that you have to believe God forever on something. He said, I've never had to believe God for any length of time, even the time that he was sick and bedfast. He said, once I found out what the word said, I got my answers pretty quickly. He said, these people that have to believe God year after year after year, I'm not sure they're even in faith. Well, what a blessing that was to hear. <laughs> the devil started telling me if Brother Hagin was still alive, he wouldn't even think you're in faith. Well, thank God Brother Hagin's in heaven. <laughs> See, folks, what other people have figured out for themselves can't supersede the work of the Holy Spirit to guide you into the truth. I've got a working relationship with God. I've always had a working relationship with God. If something needed to be changed, I understood that it was the Holy Ghost's job to show me. And if he's not showing me, it means there's nothing to be changed. And that's worked well for me. It's worked marvelously over the years. Now, this physical thing is a little bit different territory. I understand that. But faith works the same in every area. Exactly the same in every area. It's believing with the heart and saying with the mouth. That's all faith ever will be. And folks, faith works the same whether it's simple faith, whether it's saving faith, whether it's healing faith, or whether it's the gift of special faith. Faith is always the same. It may be a different measure. The gift of faith may be a different and a stronger measure than what we'd call salvation faith or just normal believer, believing faith. But faith works the same in every area. If we don't quit, the devil can't win. But we have to be open to the leading of God because there are times where God will speak to us and have us to take action to release our faith. And we've got to be ready for that if and when it comes. Amen. Jesus told people time after time after time in his earthly ministry to take action. And their action always resulted in a miraculous results. Their action always led them into healing. Because God wanted it for them all the time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is true. What a blessing to know that we've got a sure and unchanging foundation. We thank you, Father, for revealing to us what Jesus has purchased for us. We thank you that he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We declare, Father, that the Holy Ghost is our guide. Holy Spirit, as we have sought you before, we remind you that we're expectant of the word to come to pass. We're expecting you to guide us into all truth. We're expecting you to guide us into healing. We expect you to guide us into the financial blessing that God has 
prepared for us through the work of Jesus. We expect you to teach us what we need to know and show us what we need to see. Even as Jesus said you would, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're on our side, leading us and guiding us step by step, whether it's days, weeks, months, or years. You're a faithful guide. You faithfully guide us into all truth. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for being on our side. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.